Last week, Daniel tackled the barrier of hypocrisy in the church. And this week, our second topic, I'll be looking at the Bible. Uh, and more specifically, seeking to answer the question, is the Bible reliable? Uh, a question that has certainly been a huge barrier for many, and I imagine continues to be a barrier for many of you who are here today. Before uh, we get started, I'd like to first explain what I mean by reliability. As Daniel mentioned, over this past weekend, he and I went away to a conference in Kansas City. And in order to get to this conference, we decided to fly rather than drive. And so by making this decision to fly, both Daniel and I were inevitably faced with a number of reliability questions. For starters, we had to decide whether or not we thought that the machine that we were riding on was reliable. That the aircraft could safely transport us from point A to point B. We also had to decide whether or not we thought that the pilot was reliable. Whether he or she was competent enough, experienced enough to handle whatever might happen on this flight. And then lastly, we had to decide whether or not the airline company was reliable. And to make matters interesting, this happened to be the first time for Daniel and I to ride on Frontier Airlines. I'm not sure if any of you have ever flown Frontier before, but as soon as I got on the plane, I could tell that one of the major carriers had chosen to retire this lovely aircraft. And then Frontier said, no, 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 wait a minute, we'll take that one. We can get some more miles out of that baby. And then Daniel and I sit down, and the first thing we notice is these industrial-strength, military-grade seatbelts. And I leaned over to Daniel and said, I don't think we're going to make it. All of a sudden, the reliability of this flight was majorly in question. I no longer trusted the airline's ability to deliver on its promise to get me from point A to point B. And you see, to declare something as reliable is to do just that. It's, it's to trust that the object in question can, in fact, deliver on its promises. I think air travel is a really helpful example because it's easy for all of us to say that we trust Frontier Airlines, but it's not until you actually put your bottom in the seat and literally relinquish control of your life and you place it in the hands of this company, of this pilot, of this machine, only then have you actually affirmed that you truly believe that the thing in question is reliable. This morning we're going to be looking at whether or not the Bible is reliable. And to be clear, my intent is not to engage this topic as a mere intellectual exercise, but rather to engage for the purpose of answering a much weightier question, a much more practical question, is the Bible reliable enough for you to put your bottom in the seat? Reliable enough for you to relinquish control of your life and live in such a way that if it turns out that this book is not reliable, then we are in deep trouble. Now as a brief disclaimer, I recognize that there is no way I could possibly answer all the questions that you might have around this subject. The debate around the reliability of Scripture is incredibly complex. 
Countless scholars have devoted their whole lives to the study of this very subject. And I've been given 30 minutes to somehow compress all of that into a sermon. I clearly can't do that. But my hope is to scratch the surface. I can do that. And hopefully scratch the surface in such a way that is both thought-provoking and heart-provoking. In the hopes that each of us might leave this place challenged to trust the Bible a little more than when we got here. Amen? Amen. Wish me luck. I'd like for you now to stand for the reading of God's Word, as is our custom here at Christ Central. Our text is short, but meaty, profound. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. This is God's Word. Paul says, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's Word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak through me, your servant today, that you would bring your truth to bear on us, your people, that we would be transformed as we encounter you, the living God. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You be seated. The way I want to approach this topic this morning is by first addressing the three primary arguments of the day against the reliability of the Bible. And then I want to conclude by unpacking three ways that we as Christians are to embrace the Bible as reliable. So let's begin by looking at the primary reasons why many people are convinced that the Bible is unreliable and why, in my opinion, those reasons do not hold water. And I need to acknowledge here that I am indebted to numerous scholars, the work they've done that I'm borrowing liberally in this sermon, most notably Richard Bauckham, Tim Keller, and Amy Orr-Ewing. So the general consensus among most scholars, and I think many of us can affirm this through our own wrestling with scriptures, is that the three most compelling arguments for the unreliability of Scripture today are that the Bible is scientifically impossible, historically inaccurate, and culturally regressive. So look with me now at each of these. First, the Bible is scientifically impossible. I have a confession. Sometimes when I am bored, I will turn on my TV and turn on one of those wild kind of crazy TV church broadcasts. You guys know the ones I'm talking about where the pastor calls someone up on stage and, and then reveals to the audience some sickness that no one else knew about that this person has. And the pastor lays hands on the person, the person hits the deck, and then they wake up good as new. And if I'm honest, the reason I sometimes watch is because I find it not enlightening, but rather entertaining. You see, there's something hardwired in us, especially here in the West, to disbelieve the miraculous, isn't there? 
But why are miracles so difficult for our Western minds to comprehend? The answer that most of us would give is that science proves that miracles are impossible. Now don't get too excited. I'm not about to prove up here on this stage that miracles are real. But instead I want to argue this morning that it requires just as much faith to believe that miracles are impossible as it does to believe that they are real. And I'm going to use science to prove this. You see, the scientific method requires that something must be observed and tested in order to be proven scientifically true. The goal being to discern, discern the natural cause of something, why it happened. The problem is there's no way to scientifically observe or test the supernatural. Because the supernatural, as recorded in the Bible, is inherently unobservable. That's because it cannot be reproduced on demand by humans in a lab. Therefore, and this is the major point, if we are to be responsible scientists, we must acknowledge that it would be unscientific to say that just because we can't observe it or test it, then it must be impossible. To do so is to violate the very rules of science. Famous philosopher Alvin Plantinga made this comment in reference to the most important miracle of the faith, the miracle we celebrated two weeks ago, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He said, to suggest that the very practice of science requires that one reject the idea of God raising someone from the dead, this argument is like the drunk who insists on looking for his lost keys only under the street light on the ground that the light was better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. Plantinga's point is that science can never fully prove or disprove the miraculous. Therefore, we land on this subject of miracles by faith, wherever we land. So for those of you whose primary barrier for embracing the truth of the Bible is the miraculous, I would charge you to consider that your disbelief of miracles quite possibly requires just as much faith as your belief in as the belief in miracles. And to consider that although you may not have ever witnessed anything miraculous, that according to science, they could in fact be real. Second, the Bible is historically inaccurate. About seven or eight miles up the road, there is a well-known professor who has made a name for himself in reportedly proving that to believe that the events recorded in the New Testament, particularly the four Gospels, actually happened is to be ignorant. To the best of my knowledge, this perspective is pretty widely accepted in academia in America. To embrace the historicity of the New Testament in America, in an American university, is unacceptable. Maybe even laughable. And although that may be true, there have been some rumblings that that tide may be shifting a little at our universities in this country. And, and it's these rumblings that I want to share with you this morning. Much of this current shift in academia is due to the groundbreaking work of Richard Bauckham in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. 
And Bauckham's argument in his book is that it is rooted in this undeniable fact that each of the four gospel writers go out of their way to name eyewitnesses for the events that they report. But why would somebody do that? And what Bauckham has, has researched and, and, and proven is that the only reason for someone to do that, to name eyewitnesses in the first century, was so that they could be validated by the eyewitnesses themselves. Bauckham has proven that in an age, first century Israel, where fake news was even easier to purport than today, naming eyewitnesses was by far the most effective way to validate your claims. And yet, for many years, scholars have argued that the gospel accounts were too old for these eyewitnesses' claims to even matter. Because an eyewitness account is only helpful if the eyewitness is actually alive to validate it. However, most scholars have come to agree that the four Gospels were written at very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. Which means, if we connect the dots, that hundreds of people who all would have been present for the actual events were still alive when the Gospel accounts were being written and distributed. How easy would it have been for contemporaries of Jesus to refute these accounts if, in fact, the events reported were made up. But that's not what happened. We know the history that is not in question. The four Gospels took off. And within a few hundred years, they were accepted widely all over the Roman Empire. Not only do the eyewitnesses' accounts refute the historical inaccuracy claim, but also the content itself excuse me, serves to refute this claim. What do I mean? There are so many examples of things that are recorded in the Gospels that would have never been recorded unless they actually happened. Let me list a few of these. Think about the Garden of Gethsemane. We have Jesus praying, weeping, terrified. Why would you record this scene where Jesus appears to be so scared, horrified about what is about to happen, pleading with God for another way? Why would you depict the Son of God as so fragile, so weak, unless it actually happened? Or the resurrection account. Why would you record that the first people to witness the resurrection were women? A woman's testimony was not even admissible in court at this time. If you wanted a story to stick, you better choose some men to be the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. What about the character of the disciples? If you've read the Gospels before, you know they paint a picture of these disciples as petty, as jealous, as prideful, stubborn, and in the end as cowards. They run away in fear when Jesus needed them most. These men, after Christ's death, become the leaders of the church. They're the ones who are passing on this message. There's no way if I was in Peter's shoes would I let people continue to tell this story of how I denied Jesus three times. The only way that story makes it in the book is if it's true. Lastly, not only do we have eyewitness accounts as well as counterproductive content, we also have the fact that the gospel accounts fail to accurately mirror the mythology of the day. 
In particular, the gospel accounts are far too detailed to be made up. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. <coughs> now it's a lengthy quote. What Lewis is saying is that contrary to modern-day fiction, the fiction of the first century and even after that never included minute details. Certainly fiction writers today often do so to add some color and seeming authenticity to their stories. However, we have no record of any such fictional writing prior to the gospel or for hundreds of years after doing so. And yet in the Bible we hear a story about Peter being on a boat hundreds of yards away. And then when we see he sees Jesus on the beach, it's, it's reported that he went and caught 153 fish. Why would you give us that number? Not only that, but Matthew's gospel begins with this whole page of genealogy, listing name after name after name, leading up to the person of Christ. If you were writing a legend, why would you give that kind of detail? And so when you combine these three points, the eyewitness accounts, the counterproductive nature of the content, and the vast amounts of detail, you can see why more and more scholars are beginning to accept these accounts as historically accurate. Maybe that professor down the road isn't right. Maybe you don't have to be ignorant to believe that the gospel accounts are historically accurate. Brings us to our third and final argument for the unreliability of the Bible. And that being that the Bible is culturally regressive. I think most of us are probably aware of the fact that the Bible says a number of things that offend our current culture's values and beliefs. And so the argument goes, because the Bible is clearly wrong on this issue, then it cannot be trusted when it speaks on other issues as well. So what do we do with that? Interestingly enough, I'm actually not going to disagree with this claim that the Bible is culturally regressive. There are certainly times when the culture disagrees with the Bible on certain issues, yet in doing so, the culture is actually wrong in what it says that the Bible teaches. I think examples of that are slavery and women. Oftentimes, the culture is attacking the Bible in a way that's not accurate because the Bible doesn't actually say that about slavery, about women, and many other things. However, for the most part, I think it is an accurate statement to say that the Bible is culturally regressive. And I would actually like to go one step further in saying the Bible always has been and always will be culturally regressive. And yet for me, this truth actually makes the text more reliable than unreliable. What do I mean? Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, talks about how the counterculture 
countercultural nature of God's word should actually bring us comfort. And he references the movie Stepford Wives. I'm not sure if any of you have ever seen the movie, but it's a movie about the men of Stepford, Connecticut, who decide to have their wives turned into robots. The goal is so that their wives will always be compliant. And what the movie ultimately reveals is that a relationship of this kind is wholly unsatisfying because it lacks intimacy, it lacks authenticity, true connection. And Keller's point is that if the Bible doesn't offend you in some way, doesn't contradict you, your values, your beliefs in some way, then it's not real. Listen to what he says. He says, because then you have a step for God, a God of your own making, and not a God with whom you can have a relationship with. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So maybe the fact that the Bible is culturally regressive should not be a barrier to belief, but rather a catalyst for belief. Because maybe a Bible that contradicts us is not such a bad thing but rather evidence that's written by a real God, not a step from God. Now, I know that I've not fully convinced anyone by these three points, but I hope that you might be able to consider that the Bible might be scientifically possible, that it might be historically accurate, and that it being culturally regressive may actually not be such a bad thing after all. And now I want to shift gears by looking at the other side of the coin, if you will, and examining what it looks like to fully rely on the Bible. Because to be a Christian is to fully rely on this book. It necessarily is. To be a Christian is to see this book as the norming norm, the source of all truth and meaning. Contrary to the rationalist or the existentialist, as a Christian, our reason, our experience, they must be subject to this book. It's not that we throw them out, but yet they must be kept in check by what is our ultimate authority. So I want to return now to our sermon texts and Look at what full reliability looks like according to the Bible. I'm going to read our text again. 1 Thess 2, 13. And, and we, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, thank God for this, that when you, the church of Thessalonica, received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. To fully rely on the Bible is at a minimum to embrace three truths about the scriptures. It's to embrace, embrace the truth that the Bible is inspired, it is authoritative, and it is alive. The Bible is inspired. It's one thing to acknowledge that the Bible is scientifically possible, historically accurate, culturally acceptable, but it's a whole other thing to embrace it as inspired. What do we mean when we say that the Bible is inspired? 
2 Timothy 3.16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. It comes out of God's mouth. To believe the Bible is inspired is to believe that God revealed to the 40 different authors what he wanted them to write. What we're not saying is that the biblical writers entered into some sort of a trance and mechanically copied down these words like some sort of robot. No, here at Christ Central we believe that God did not subvert the personalities and passions of the biblical writers, but rather he used them for his purposes to inscripturate his word so that it might be available to all people for all time. We believe that all 40 of these authors were acting under the authority of the Holy Spirit, writing the words that God desired for them to write. And therefore, going back to our text, we can confidently trust that these words are not the words of men, but rather the words of God. Which leads us to the second truth about Scripture that we as Christians must embrace because these words are inspired, because they're God's words, they are absolutely authoritative, whether we like it or not. I was reminded this past week at a conference Daniel and I read that Christianity is and has always been a received faith, which means we don't get to make it up. It's passed down to us. We're indebted to generations of Christians who have passed down to us the truth of God's Word. In church, the Word of God is either received as authoritative or it is not. To pick and choose what we like and what we don't like from this book is to neuter the text, is to completely rob it of its rightful authority in our lives. If it is, in fact, God-breathed, then we must submit to it as authoritative. Lastly, to fully rely on the Bible, we must embrace that this book is alive. Look again at our text. Paul says that this book really is the Word of God and that it is at work in you believers. Now, it's one thing to say that a book has had an impact on you. Harry Potter had an impact on me. But it's very different to say that a book is at work in you. The author of Hebrews goes on to make this even more explicit. Chapter 4, he says, The Word of God is living and active. The point here is that this book is not a doorway to more knowledge or to warm fuzzies. But rather, it's a doorway into relationships. A means to connect with a person, with God himself. God is declaring to us, I will meet you here, in and through my word. What does that mean? A few nights ago, I got a horrifying text from my mom. A little bit of context. My parents are in Cancun with my little brother, Bradford, his wife, Louise, and their three children for vacation. This is what the text said. So I need you all to pray. Bradford and Louise are in an ambulance headed to the hospital. Harrison, their three-year-old son, is bleeding profusely large amounts of blood. 
I received that text around 10 p.m. I didn't hear anything else for about two hours. It might have been the scariest moment in my life. Not exaggerating. I really didn't think I was ever going to see my nephew again. What does this story have to do with a living word? You see, that morning my sister-in-law Louise just so happened to be reading in Acts 27. She was reading in Acts 27 about how Paul was shipwrecked on his way to Rome. And how God was in control of that storm and used that storm for his purpose. And so she's riding in the ambulance, holding her three-year-old son who's covered in blood. She's reminded that our God is in charge of the storms and he uses them for his good. And so she finds comfort in our God in the midst of the worst possible circumstances a parent could ever imagine. Just to be clear... She did not find some sort of prosperity gospel promise that her son was going to be okay, but rather comfort that her God was still in control, still on his throne. And then thousands of miles away, here I am laying in my bed, literally shaking, scared to death. And my wife, Stacy, leans over to me and she asks me to pray. And I literally can't do it. Your pastor, I couldn't pray. I couldn't even get a word out. And in that moment, my first inclination was to grab my phone and start researching what was happening. What are his chances of making it? But thankfully, God did not allow me to do that. But instead, I opened up my Bible app and I began to read. And it was Psalm 34 that God met me. And I'm going to share just a little. This is what it says. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. I was so scared. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. So much there, but really it was that last line that hit me the hardest. It was as if God was inviting this poor man, this scared little boy, to come and sit in his lap and to be held by him. And God didn't give me a prophetic word. I didn't get a promise that Harrison was going to be okay. But what he did, he gave me himself. His promise to be with me. And Harrison is okay. He is okay. But God met me there. To trust that the Bible is reliable is to live into the reality that this book is alive. And to open this book is to open the doorway into relationship with the living God of the universe. I know full well that I haven't answered all your questions. I recognize that you still struggle to believe that the Bible is reliable, that you probably doubt far more than you believe. So I want to conclude this morning by sharing the story of probably the most famous doubter. His name is Thomas, and this comes from John chapter 20, verse 24. 
Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples, they told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again in the upper room, and Thomas was with them, and all the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came in anyway and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord, I know that I can't convince you through well-laid-out arguments that the Bible is reliable. The truth is, there's no argument that can accomplish that. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Therefore, my charge for those of you who continue to doubt, really for all of us, is to follow the example of doubting Thomas. Put your finger here. And I hope and pray that as you do that, the Holy Spirit will meet you here. And that you will not just discover a good book, but encounter a living being. And that your response will be like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Would you pray with me? God, I confess my own doubt. So often I struggle to believe that your word is true, that it's inspired, that it's authoritative, that it's alive. God, I pray that you'd meet me and each one of us in our doubt, that we would encounter you, the living God, that we would know in the depth of our being that you are alive at work and worthy of our worship, and we would respond just like Thomas by saying, my Lord and my God. Pray these things in Jesus' name.